15 years old. Samuel pours oil over his head. For five years, he kind of goes back and forth between Saul's house and the and and coming back and spending time with the with the sheep. And then he has his battle with Goliath after about five years. He ends up running from Saul for about ten years. Last week we saw the end of Saul and Jonathan and the beginning of David's time as king. And today as we take a look, as we begin in chapter 4, we're going to see David unite the kingdom. At the first, when David initially is made king, he's just king of Judah. He's just king of one tribe. And Ishbosheth, who is raised up to king, one of the sons of Saul, is raised up to king by his uncle Abner. You see, Abner was uh, the, the brother of Saul's dad. So uh, Abner is Saul's uncle. So he raises up his, his well, I don't know what you call it, great nephew uh, in Ishbosheth and really takes control of the kingdom through a puppet king, Ishbosheth. Till he decides he wants to finally make peace with David. Some, some challenges are made to his authority by Ishbosheth. <clears throat> so he promises to give the kingdom to David, trying to probably make a play to become David's number two guy. David's number two guy was a fellow named Joab. Joab was kind of like Abner, a pretty harsh dude. And Abner had killed Joab's brother. So Joab uh, decides to, to make a ruse and invite Abner to come say he has something he wants to talk to him about and ultimately kills him so that he could kill him for what he did to his brother. So we see a lot of chaos and craziness going on around David. And here's the thing. We can kind of get caught up in that. Here's what I want you to see. David's still a man after God's own heart. Anybody got chaos and craziness in their life? Around their life? The people, family, friends? You know, it just seems to be all this craziness. Listen, none of those things remove you or take you or separate you from being a man or woman after God's own heart. A man or woman after God's own heart is someone that seeks the Lord first. There's going to be chaos. Life is full of chaos and craziness and people doing weird things and us messing up. And we'll see that in David's life as well. But what we're going to recognize and hopefully what we're going to see, though David has his struggles, though David makes his mistakes, the Lord was still the Lord. He still carried that prominent place in David's life. And David, in, in times of trouble or in times of, of uh, prosperity, he knew where his help comes from. In fact, he wrote that in the Psalms. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from thee, maker of heaven and earth. His idea being that the concept that he knew he was where he was because of God, that he has what he has because of the Lord, that it wasn't about him, that it was about God and about what God did in his life. So as we look at the craziness around David's life, we need to recognize that David is a man just like any of us. And that the same way he is capable of being a man after God's own heart, we are capable of being men or women after God's own heart, just allowing God to have that prominent place in our life. Well, we begin in chapter 4. It says, Now when, son, when Saul's son heard about Abner, that he had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all of Israel was troubled. Remember, Abner's the real king. Ishbosheth was just the, the, the least son of Saul's family. He never went to war. He was just somebody who grew up in the palace. He was probably very young. 
at the time when, when Abner raises up. And once Abner's gone, nobody has any faith in Ishbosheth. And once Abner's gone, Ishbosheth knows uh, there's nobody holding his throne for him. And so ultimately, his days are numbered if there comes into his life a wicked man who wants the throne. He'll just kill him and take it. So when it says he lost heart, this is what's going on. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bachanah, and the name of the other was Rechab. The sons of Rimon the Berethite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth was part of Benjamin. Now when we look at this, we're going to remember these guys, and we're going to see these guys um, prominently in this chapter and a little bit later. But as we look at them, here's what I want you to understand. They are cousins of Saul. Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. Basically, when we think of that, you need to think that Benjamin was the family. He was of the Benjamites. That means they were all, everybody of the Benjamites were all related. They were brothers, cousins, whatever, but they were all related. They're part of the same brother of the sons of Jacob. So these guys who are part of the family, they decide, you know, they're captains they're captain, they'd be given a place of prominence in the army. So they come, they come under a ruse. <clears throat> it says in verse 3, Because the Berethites fled the Gatam and had been sojourners there until this day. And, and then it gives us a little side note, verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was about five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, he'll again play later on a, a prominent, more prominent role as we continue in the story. But as we look, here's what's going on. Okay, we're looking at Ishbosheth. He is the current uh, one in line in the line of Saul. The next son after Ishbosheth is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, because he's been made lame, has no claim to the throne. Uh, because because of that lameness. And the reason he's lame is because his nurse, the woman who was watching him, when Saul and Jonathan were killed, here's what would take place. Saul and Jonathan and all his brothers, except for Isbosheth, are slain in battle. The nurse knows if someone was to take over the kingdom, they kill the rest of the family. History's full of that. Well, the, these are the ones in line for the kingdom. Well, here you have this little baby, this, this child probably five years old, she picks him up and runs with him, and in her haste, she falls. Now, whatever fall it was, it had to be a pretty gnarly fall. We're not just talking about, oops, she fell down. There was a fall, and in that fall, his legs are broken. And his legs are broken in such a way that he is lame for the rest of his life. So he's lame, meaning either he couldn't walk at all, or he constantly had to walk with a limp because the legs never healed properly. And this occurs because his nurse is afraid that people are going to come and kill him. Now, the reason they're telling us about Mephibosheth is he's, they're giving us the lineage of Saul. Ishbosheth is king right now of Israel. David is king of Judah. Ishbosheth has just lost the strength, and the next guy after Ishbosheth is Mephibosheth, and, and he doesn't have a, a, a right to the throne, to worship, to the court at all. Because now he's, he's maimed. 
So he, he wouldn't have an opportunity for the throne. So the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Bahadnath, they came out at the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying in his bed at noon. Now, before we give Ishbosheth a bunch of grief about being in bed at noon, listen, there, as is in many other cultures, there was siestas. Now, I'm sorry if you don't get that, but if you go to Peru, you will. Oh, no, I don't ever need a break. Sure, come to Peru. And when everybody in Peru at the heat of the day is siesta in, you go ahead and work. But it'll be about 90 degrees outside and over 100% humidity. And you will shrivel up like a raisin and pray for death just walking outside because of the way it is. In that culture, in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, they did a siesta and then they continue to work. In Greece, it's the same way. You go to Greece... In the middle of the day, you're not going to find a lot of Greeks running around. Now, they're going to, they take about a four-hour break in the middle of the day. And then from 8 o'clock to midnight, they finish out their, their day. Or however, they, they're up and running around till very late at night. That's just a culture. It's not the same as ours. The same way here in the Middle East, Isbosheth, it's siesta time. He's, he's in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. He's gone to lie down, and he's in his bed, and here come these guys. They know it's siesta time, nap time. They're going to come through. They, they're up to no good. It says in, and in verse 6, And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. Keep in mind, the soldiers in those days were paid part payment, part corn. And that corn would be wheat or, or some type of grain. So they were given food and some money. And every day they would come pick up their daily bread, their daily rations. So it wasn't unusual that the captains of, of hundreds, each would be a captain over a hundred, would come and gather the wheat or the grain for their guys. So they come in as though they're getting wheat. Uh, but it says in verse 7, For when they had come into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. So they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. This is just a little sick they 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 cut this guy's head off and then they spend that whole night running around with a head they got you know i don't know how they're carrying it whether in a sack or just by his hair because they've got a plan they've got a plan and this plan is in 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 direct uh opposition to david David never self-promoted. What does that mean? David never made himself king. He never put out a billboard and said, make me king. He never made those things happen. Twice in David's reign, guys, one guy who said he killed Saul. Everybody remember? He said he killed Saul. Whether he did or didn't, didn't matter. It was a bad thing to tell David either way. And he comes and he thinks that David's going to promote him and give him a bunch of money and be stoked. Hey, cool. You killed my enemy. That's what the guy thinks. I killed the enemy of David. But listen, when you go through scripture, I want you to find a place where David ever calls Saul his enemy. He never does. People assume they're enemies because Saul wanted to kill David, but David never looked at Saul as the enemy. David always looked at Saul as the Lord's anointed. 
and that when God wanted David to have that position or a position, God would do it. David didn't have to. So his role was to just keep doing what the things that God put before him to do. David continued in obedience to do those things. Even when it got him cast out, even when it meant he had to hide in the caves, even when it meant for 10 years he had to lost his first wife and <coughs> would spend his time running. Nonetheless, he never sought to make himself king. Here you have these two guys. Now they know Abner's gone, so there's nobody to be afraid of. Abner was the big scary dude in the kingdom. So they're not afraid of Abner, so they kill Ishbosheth. They cut off his head, and they're headed to David. Hey, we just killed the king who was your enemy. Now you can be the king of it all. Now, judging how things have gone for other people who tried this with David, you have a pretty good idea how this is probably going to turn out. So all night long, they head to him. They're running. It says in verse 8, So they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. Once again, they make the presumption to get ahead by bringing the head of an enemy that David never considered an enemy. Because David never sought the throne apart from whether or not God would give it to him. It's really contrary to the mindset of American thinking. You know that old Benjamin Franklin saying, God helps those who help themselves? Yeah, a man after or a woman after God's own heart is really in opposition to that saying. It's not about helping myself. It's about doing what God gives me to do today. And if God wants me to be this or that, he'll do it. I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to promote. I don't have to do all those things. God will provide. That was David. That's the way he did things. These guys are thinking to get ahead. Benjamites, Saul's declining. We want to get ourselves a place in David's throne. Well, let's kill this dude and David will, will give us a promotion. So they run to him. He's calling him his enemy who sought your life. And then not only do they call him his enemy, they do two things. The second thing, they say the Lord. Okay, they use the covenantal name of God. The Lord God has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. So they presume to have done God's work. Two things. They assume to have brought David the head of his enemy. And second, they presume to have done God's work. God told us to do that. Now, that's not something that's uncommon in church history, by the way. That's something that's been, been a, a sad part of church history throughout the ages. You want to you wanna mess with your noodle? Do a study of church history and see what the church really is like. The church is rotten to the core which shouldn't surprise us because we as men and women are rotten to the core and when you when you give people who are rotten to the core authority what happens they are going to abuse it and that's the same thing that happened in the church on uh on uh september 11th when the the two towers uh got knocked down <clears throat> and we hear all these things about jihad, and we talk about all the crazy, why, how could anybody do such a thing? In 1000 AD, not the United States, mind you, but the church put an army together, sent the army over to the Middle East, 
to Islamic countries where there was a young prophet just rising. His name was Muhammad. And we went over there and we told the church, told the army, you are fighting for God. Whoever you kill and whatever you do in the name of God is not a sin. It is holy war. We call it the Crusades. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, what? That shall he also reap. Okay? There was a time in church history where we sowed what the Islamic extremists called jihad. We did it first. We, I mean loosely, the church. And the, the church in name, not necessarily in reality. But you see, just like here, these guys come to David and said, we're doing God's work. That's happened in history over and over and over again. How many crazy people do you have to hear, God told me to do this? Did God tell him to do it? Of course he didn't tell him to do it. Does he really have a relationship with God? No, he doesn't have a relationship with God. He's loony. He's lost it. He's crazy. It's not good. So we want to, we want to speak toward and for those people who really know God. And, but these guys come to David, a man after God's own heart, and they say, God told us to take this guy, kill him in his sleep, chop off his head, and bring it to you. Now, David knows God didn't tell him to do that because it is against the ordinances that God gave David. It is against the very character of the man after God's own heart. And the same thing is true in church history. Just because the church by name, stood up and said, God told us to go to a holy war. Does that mean that's what God told them to do? Of course not. It's men making decisions in the name of God and then using the name of God to justify their decision. doesn't make it God's will nor God's plan. But it's not unexpected because of the heart of men. The heart of men is like that. Heart of men will do those things. Well, let's see what happens. So David answered Rechab and Ba'anah, his, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziglag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. About this time, these two guys are thinking, this was probably not the greatest plan we ever... One of them was looking at the other one saying, I told you this was a bad idea. <clears throat> then he says in verse 11, How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his house on his bed? Therefore, I will now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth. One of the requirements that God had for leadership and government especially as we go throughout the Old Testament in his word, is that when man, when by man man's blood is shed, that that man's blood is required. A punishment was given by God. If you kill, then by man you should be slain. It's not okay. And the Lord said, if you don't, God said, if you don't, you will defile the land. And the blood of your brothers will cry out to me. Remember, remember Cain and Abel, right? Cain and Abel and the Lord says, your brother, his blood cries out to me. 
Because it's not just. And God is holy and just. (laughs) God is holy and just. And he has a plan. And he has a purpose. So we want to remember that in in light of these issues. Now, so he says, this is what's going to be done. Verse 12, so David commanded his young men and they executed him, cut off their hands and feet and hung them by the pool of Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. They cut off their hands and feet. Why? The hands and feet were the instruments that perpetrated the crime. And David, by hanging them there in Hebron, is saying to all the people who might have an idea of how to get ahead. He's saying to everyone. It's, it's kind of trickled slowly across the crowd. <laughs> but he is saying... To anybody who might think, hey, I can go against the family of Saul and earn myself a position among David, he's saying, this is what will happen if you touch the family of Saul. Now, the family of Saul only has one child left. There's only one child left, Mephibosheth. And whose dad was was he? Jonathan. And what's Jonathan to David? Man, best friend ever, right? Best friend ever. David sings his love for Jonathan exceeded the love of women. That he just, that relationship was special. So, this is going to be important. It's going to play an important role as we continue on in the scriptures. We look at chapter 5. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. So now everybody in Israel is, is looking to David. Uh, we're your family, we're your kin, David. David is king there in Judah. <laughs> also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one that led Israel out and brought them in. Remember the song they used to sing about David, right? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. They knew David was the guy that God blessed in the, in the kingdom of Saul. And then, not only that, they said also... And that the Lord has said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. So now the the children of Israel are coming to David and finally he's going to be anointed king over all of Israel. Now he's ruled over Judah for seven years, but now he's going to rule over the rest of Israel. All united under King David. And Israel is going to enter into the greatest period in their monarchy. Now, the Israeli monarchy is going to go actually quite a few years. But after David comes Solomon, and after Solomon, the kingdom splits. And so we're going to see the monarchy. What God said would happen when you you trust in man to rule you, he's going to take advantage of you, and you're going to have all these problems. And if we can learn to trust in God to rule, then we can find ourselves in a place where we can not only receive direction and blessing, but God trusting that God is able to guide and we don't have to have a king or somebody in authority to take that place, but rather God taking that place for the children of Israel, that they would uh, have, have allowed themselves to be a theocracy rather than a monarch, monarchy. But anyways, they're entering the time. Their second king is going to be their best king. Solomon's going to enter him into the best economic time in Israel, and then it all falls apart. One king, 
the best king, one economic period of time being swell, and then they're tanking. And the rest is going to be struggle and, and, and difficulty. But the Lord had called him to be a shepherd. And while we're considering that, that concept, shepherd, I want you to think of two things. One, what David wrote in the 23rd Psalm. Who's the shepherd? The Bible says what? The Lord is my shepherd, right? If you look at the 23rd Psalm, the word, the phrase, the Lord is capital L-O-R-D. It's in Hebrew letters what's called the Tetragrammaton. It's the impronounceable name of God. It's Yahweh, the Y-H-V-H, the consonants of the name of God. So God is my shepherd. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Gives his life for the sheep. Now, I want you to hold on to that concept. God looking at David saying, David, I've called you to shepherd my people. I want you to be a shepherd of my people. What David wrote, that the Lord ultimately is our shepherd, our guide. What Jesus said in John chapter 10, I want you to keep all those things in your mind and turn to the right in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet who would write at the same time as Jeremiah, who would write at the same time as a fellow named Daniel. We've heard of those guys, hopefully, before. Um, and Ezekiel's a contemporary of them. He, he's going to prophesy from Babylon, which is the very same place that Daniel is, right? Ezekiel and Daniel, several other prophets will be there about that same time. <laughs> but as we look at Ezekiel, I, I just want us to go to Ezekiel chapter 34. And I I want us to consider this concept of the shepherd, that the Lord is my shepherd, that Jesus said he is a good shepherd. In light of prophecy, prophetically, what is it that God said about the leadership? This shepherding leadership really begins with David, the shepherd king, right? He was a young shepherd boy. The Lord raised him up, made him king, and said, now I want you to shepherd my people. And that's a call that God gives to the kings from that point forward. Not just to the kings, to the priests, he gives the same call, shepherd my people. To the prophets, he gives the same call, shepherd my people. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, it says uh, in the beginning in verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel. So this is God's judgment. The kingdom has divided. Northern kingdom has been conquered. Southern kingdom has been conquered. It's all over. Israel doesn't really exist anymore. They're in slavery. And God says, looking at their history, their past history and the future, this word comes from Ezekiel the prophet. Woe to the shepherds. What's the charge? First charge. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You know, it's interesting because one of, the, one of my favorite lines from, uh, from a movie Braveheart was a concept that, that Mel Gibson shares in that movie where he says, most kings think the people exist for them. What they don't understand is that they exist for the people. That's really... God's concept of, of leadership. Shall the shepherds feed themselves? The Lord says, You're not some, the shepherd doesn't feed himself. He feeds who? 
the flock. A few weeks ago, we were blessed by having Edward Amaya come from Far Reacher Ministries. Maybe some of you guys had an opportunity to see about the, the chaplains in the Sudan. And one of the things I love about those chaplains and what they're charged with is they tell those chaplains in their training, your job is not to save yourself. Your job is to save the women and children of the village. And if that means you die, then you die. And that's, again, a concept of leadership that falls in line scripturally. Here, (laughs) Ezekiel is saying, here's my problem with the shepherds of my people up until this time. You feed yourself and you're not feeding my people. Now, this should be a challenge to us, too. Anyone in any form of leadership. Now, listen. Any man who, who, who is the head of household. Any woman or man who ha- is responsible over a ministry, whether that be their family or their children or Sunday school or a Bible study. I don't care what it is. If you're in any type of a position of leadership at all, first rule, your job is not to feed yourself. Your job is to feed the flock. The, the people that God has entrusted to you, whether that's, this is your children, whether this is in your workplace, whether this is in your ministry, doesn't make any difference. Your job is to feed them, feed the flock. Not feed myself, not meet my needs, but we, we exist as very selfish people. That's my first thought. For example, right now, I'm not thinking about if any of you are hungry. But I am starving. And so occasionally a, a vision passes before my eyes of a carne asada taco. <laughs> no barbecue. I don't need no barbecue. Just carne asada. <laughs> now, my view, my attitude should not be on feeding me. My attitude should be on Feeding the flock. And that's the charge that Jesus brings. First charge, feed the flocks. Then the second thing he says, verse 3. But you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. That means you take the best and give the rest to them. But again, this is God's charge. Now think, this is God's charge against the monarchy, the kings who are supposed to shepherd his people, the priests who are supposed to teach the people, the prophets who are to give the word of God to the people. So he says, you you eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings. That's the best. But you're not feeding the flock. You're taking the best for yourself, and you're not taking care of the needs of, of those whom the Lord has in charge you with. He goes on in verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened. So what does that mean? Part of the role of leadership is to strengthen the weak. Strengthen, I want you to think about this. You have not strengthened, the weak you have not strengthened, you have not healed those who are sick, nor have you bound up the broken, nor have you brought back what was driven away, nor have you sought what was lost. Luke chapter 15, there's three parables that Jesus brings together, and each of the parables deals with something lost, right? You guys remember? Uh, one guy had a, a, a hundred sheep, 99 he had, but one was missing, right? He leaves the 99 to what? Go find the one that's lost. The second story that Jesus tells a woman who lost a coin and she tears her whole house apart what? until she what? 
finds the lost coin. The third story that he tells is a story of two lost sons. Right? The younger brother and the older brother. We call it the prodigal son. The idea of those who are lost being found, being brought back. Here the Lord's charge against his shepherds, the kings, the people in leadership is, hey, people are lost, you don't find them. People are sick, you don't heal them. People are broken, you don't bind them up. This ought to start sounding like something. It ought to start sounding like someone. It ought to start sounding like something in our minds because if you hold your finger in in Ezekiel, because we're coming back, and you flip left and you go to Isaiah and keep going until you get to Isaiah chapter 61. In Isaiah chapter 61, you're going to hear a very familiar scripture that when Jesus stood in the synagogue in Nazareth, he read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus closed up the book and said, today these things are fulfilled in your hearing. The charge in Ezekiel, you didn't strengthen the weak, you didn't heal the sick, you didn't bind up the broken, you didn't seek out those who were lost. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Exactly. All the things that the leadership didn't do, isn't that what Jesus did? And who's Jesus? He's the Mashiach Nagid. He's the Messiah. He's the promised king. The one that that the nation should have always been looking to as their ruler. He's the theocracy. He is. All of those things. And so as we look at this, hey, this is what we want to recognize. This is what we want to see. Listen, in verse 5, he goes on. So they're scattered because there's no shepherd. So they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. He goes on to describe the hardship of his sheep. Now just go ahead with me to verse 23. In verse 23, listen to what he says. I will establish one shepherd over them and he will feed them my servant. What's it say? David. David has been dead for hundreds of years. When he talks about my servant David, he's talking about the line. Remember God's promise to David. We're going to see it in a couple chapters. David, we're going to see David gets a big old fancy house. Everybody remember the story? David has a big old fancy house and he looks and there's a tent. And God lives in the tent. And David looks at his big old fancy house and he says... I got a big old fancy house and and God lives in a tent. It's not okay. I need to build God a house. So he goes to the prophet and he says, now, can I build God a house? And the prophet doesn't ask God, which is always a bad idea. And and he says, sure, sounds good to me. Build God a house. So, So David starts to make plans to build God a house. And then God goes to the prophet and says, why did you tell David to build me a house? And the prophet said, this is a Jackie paraphrase, by the way. The prophet said, well, uh, I thought it sounded like a good idea. And God said, it's not okay. Go tell David, no, he can't build my house. His hands are covered with blood. He will not, I'm not going to have a warrior build my house. I'm going to have a king of peace. That's Solomon, a king of peace. The wars were over. David handed him a kingdom all put together. So God's going to use Solomon to build his house. 
But then he gives a promise to David. Listen, David, you're not going to build my house, but I will build you a house. And from the line of David, God promises, will come the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, the one who's going to rule over Israel, the one shepherd, the one shepherd. So when he says here, I'm going to have one shepherd, uh, my servant David, he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one who is to come. And he will feed them and he will be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. He's talking about. So listen, when we see here, he says, I've called David to shepherd my people. David later on writes, it's the Lord who's my shepherd. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, declaring himself to be the Messiah, but not only Messiah. Psalm 23 says, Yahweh, or God himself is the shepherd. So Jesus not only is declaring himself to be Messiah, he's declaring himself to be God. And the fulfillment of the promise in Ezekiel 34 that my kings, human kings, are messed up and they don't care about the people, but I will be their king and I will be their God and I will feed them. All fulfilled in Christ. All begun in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It all starts here with the Lord giving the example in 2 Samuel chapter 5 of David shepherding God's people. Therefore, it says in 2 Samuel, therefore in verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, King David, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And I want you guys to, to hopefully grasp this concept. In the scripture, whenever it says they made a covenant, we always think he made a promise. Don't forget how they made promises then. Do you remember how they made promises? They, it, the word for covenant is cut. To cut covenant. So they made a sacrifice. And this sacrifice would be divided down the middle, and the two parties would stand between this cut animal. And they would make a, a covenant, a promise. I'll be faithful to my role as your shepherd or may this, what happened to this beast, happen to me. That's the concept of cutting covenant. And so David cuts covenant. He cuts covenant. Now, what, 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 why is that important? But listen, Jeremiah tells of a new covenant. And Jesus said, the new covenant is my blood shed for you. So who becomes the beast cut in two to, to bring into our lives the new covenant that where God writes his law in our hearts, where he gives us and ushers us into an, a relationship with grace. Who's the beast? God, who dies for us and divides his body broken for us so that we can walk into the new covenant. All those things, all those pictures, all those shadows in the scripture to show us what God is going to do. In verse 4 it says, David was 30 years old. When he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. So from 15 to 30, running, crazy life, life chaos. Next 40 years he reigns, and he lived happily ever after. Never had another struggle the rest of his life, right? <laughs> That'd be pretty cool if that's how the story went. But then the Bible would be very short. The Bible's very long because that's not how the life went. That's not how the story went. 
It says, in Hebron he reigned over Judah for seven years, six months, and then in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all of Israel and Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem. Now, the first thing, this is the first thing David does. He's anointed king. But you know, in the United States, we have a, our capital is in Washington, D.C. We all know why that is, right? Because Washington, D.C. doesn't really belong to any state. So no state can lay claim to having the capital of the nation. In the nation of Israel right now, it's divided among all 12 tribes. But there's one area, there's one town, there's one city in the midst of it all that's never been conquered. It's the city Jerusalem, the city of peace, God's city. The city that God loves. And if you've ever been, anybody, how many guys have been to Jerusalem? You walk through Jerusalem, do you think to yourself, man, I see why God loves this place. Well, you might say that because spiritually it's a, it's, a, it's a really heavy, neat, incredible place when you walk in. I kind of feel like I'm walking home. But it's not going to be because of beautiful trees. It's not going to be because of the nice flowing fields of grass. It's a big rock. Why does God love Jerusalem? I'll tell you if you want to know. I know. I knew you would want to know, so I'm going to tell you. Genesis chapter 22, listen, Genesis chapter 22, in, in, in the Bible, when we study the Bible, there are several principles of, of interpreting or interpretation. The, the fancy word for the principles of interpretation are hermeneutics. It's not really important, but the important part of that is the first time a word's used carries a heavy weight on what that word is going to mean and symbolize throughout the word. For example, the first time the word love is used in the Bible is in Genesis 22. And it's a love from a father to his son. And it's the story of Abraham being told by God to take the son that you love and make him a burnt offering unto me. Offer your son, what's he say? On the mountain that I will show you. Now, back then, before anything's gone on, before anything's happened, he takes him to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, you'll, you'll see called other names throughout Scripture, one of those being Zion, another being Golgotha. It's all the same mountain. It's all the same place. Abraham goes and he offers his son. We know the story, right? Abraham lays his son on the altar and he's ready to plunge the knife and an angel stops him. The angel of the Lord stops him. He says, now I know that you, that you love God even more than your children. Which is something, by the way, Jesus called us to. Hopefully for most of us, all it will be is a verbal assent that I love you most, Lord. And it will never be standing before an angry mob holding one of our children saying, denounce the Lord or I'm going to kill your child. But there are brothers and sisters around the world who face that reality could be so what happens he stops and the lord provides for them a ram in the thicket right the ram's caught in the thicket and abraham makes a sacrifice of a of a ram which is an interesting story because the sacrifice was always <clears throat> was was well we'll get i, I won't I, I won't take that rabbit trail we'll do that later <laughs> so he, he sacrifices the ram and then Abraham names the place. Yahweh Yideh. 
or Jehovah Jireh, if you like to pronounce J's, but there's no J's in Hebrew, so. But Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh. And he called the place, the Lord shall provide himself. And then he says, in this mount, it shall be provided. That same mount, the same place where Christ is going to be crucified. The reason Jerusalem is God's city is because from the foundation of the world, God gave his son to die in that place. And so he loves Jerusalem. It'd be like you and I, you know, when we drive by and we see a place on a road where somebody's put a cross because someone they loved died there and they want to mark the spot so that people don't just drive by like this is not a special place. I, I lost someone I loved here. That's what God has said about Jerusalem since. The, do you? Yeah. That's what God has said since the beginning of Jerusalem. It's my city. So David, the first thing he does as he's king is he goes and claims the city. And when he gets to it, look what it says. When he gets there, this is what the Jebusites or the people living in Jerusalem say. It says, he goes to Jerusalem against the Jebusites to the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David saying, you shall not come in here. The blind and the lame can repel you. They can, David cannot come in here. So here's what they're shouting. <laughs> it's, they're shouting from the wall, probably in a French accent. They're... They're shouting from the wall to David that the blind and the lame can keep this city from you. You can't get here. There's no way you can take this city. So David, David, nevertheless, in verse 7, says he took the stronghold of Zion, which is the city of David, Jerusalem. David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind that I hate, he shall be chief and captain therefore they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house <clears throat> that's that's a saying for the rest of david's life whenever he has an enemy they call him the blind and the lame because of this moment them saying uh we're blind and lame and we can keep you out of here so so david dwelt in the stronghold and called the city of david and david built all around from milo inward now here's what takes place it, the scriptural will uh, enlighten us a little bit. But here he said, Jebu he's there before the Jebusites. Jerusalem's a hard place to take. It's on a hill. There's no way to Jerusalem without going up. So if you've got to go up to Jerusalem, the guys on top can just drop rocks on your head all day long. And you have this frustrating battle taking place. But there's no way to get water into the city. David, understanding there's no way to get water, they must have a water shaft somewhere. They discover that water shaft. They call it Warren Shaft today. And if you have an opportunity to go to Israel, you'll get a chance to see it, especially if you go and visit Hezekiah's tunnel, which Hezekiah digs later on to provide the city with water. <clears throat> so David makes this announcement. Whoever wants to be captain, he'll, he'll conquer. And in this story, I think David really becomes a picture of, of Christ. There are strongholds that, uh, that the Lord wants to take, and he will take them based on God's people being willing to do what needs to be done. Sometimes what needs to be done is extreme. You know, 1958, Ecuador, 
bunch of missionaries doing an outreach to the Aka Indians. Aka just means naked. It's a derogatory term. I don't remember the real name of the Indians, but, but I know the guys. Jim Elliott being one of them. Called to reach out to these, these Indians and, and, and their children would ask them, are you, they're dangerous. Are you taking guns? Yeah, we take guns with us. We got guns with us. And, and if they attack, we'll shoot them up into the air. Well, Dad, if they attack, what if they, you don't scare them off when you shoot them up in the air? And the fathers would tell their children, we know Jesus, they don't. There was a stronghold in the middle of Ecuador in the 1950s. And one day, trying to do an outreach, maybe most of us have seen the, the movie or read the book, Through the Gates of Splendor. One day, a lie was told. That lie perpetuated and got a bunch of the, the, the warriors of the tribe angry with these people in this little yellow plane. And so they came and they attacked them. And they fired in the air like crazy. But they didn't shoot not one of them. And every single one of them was speared and died on that beach. There was a stronghold in Ecuador. Well, that doesn't make any sense. They're all dead. How's God going to use that? Because their wives took their children and moved in. And their children were able to minister to other kids because there was not a child in that tribe who didn't have a father or an uncle or a family member that had been speared by somebody else. So they were instantly considered brothers. And the wives instantly given a, a, a position there within the tribe. And as they came, the tribe was open and they shared the gospel. And every single one of them, not most of them, every single one of them got saved. God saved because God's people were willing to do what it took to take the stronghold. Are we willing to do what it takes? To take the stronghold. For Joab, it was easy. Because Joab's a sinner. He's rotten to the core. He kills people. He's a murderer. He's just like us. Just like us. But he was willing to do whatever it took. One of the things, you say a lot of bad things about Joab. Joab, Joab was faithful to David. He wasn't a good guy. But he was faithful to David. So, I respect Joab for that. And I see more of me and Joab than I see of me and David. David becomes such a great picture of Christ in a lot of ways. Not perfectly, but in a lot of ways. And Joab becomes a great picture of me. And here's this stronghold. And, 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 and for you and I, the stronghold, maybe the stronghold is, is Buell or Castlefort or Filer or Twin Falls or wherever we, wherever we call home. And the Lord says, I want to take this city. You willing to do what's got to be done? I promise you it's not going to cost you what it costs those missionaries. But it is going to cost you something. You got to be willing to stand up and be counted. You got to be willing to cross the street and say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And they might laugh. And they may mock. But just in case you're wondering, that's not persecution. So, 
Are we willing to do it? Do what needs to be done. As we, as we close out tonight, as we take a look, this is what David said to Joab, man. And Joab did it. And then in verse 10 it says, listen, in verse 10 it says, So David went on and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. And we'll come back and, and go through the rest of that chapter next time. But here's what I want you to grasp from, from verse 10. What it, what it says in the Hebrew is, is so much more telling than, than how we read it in English. What it says in the Hebrew is, is, and David kept going and growing. I like that. David kept going forward and growing. That's the man after God's own heart. He's always moving forward. He's going to fall. He's going to stumble. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to be a failure. He's going to... All those things. It doesn't matter. It was never about us and it was never about David. It's about the God he serves. It's about the real David. It's about the real King of kings and Lord of lords. It's about Jesus Christ, the real shepherd who gives his life for the sheep to feed us. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6? Unless you eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, you have no part of me. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's saying unless I become a part of your life. When we eat bread, what happens? We eat bread and our body assimilates it, breaks it down into protein and uses that protein to feed our muscles. That bread becomes part of me. When I eat Christ, when I make him a part of my life, he becomes my Lord and Savior. That's what he's talking about. When he says, when you drink my blood, he's, he's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about when, when we make that sin sacrifice that Jesus gave to us, <coughs> a part of who I am. Now I'm, I'm, I, he is in me and I in him. Isn't that what the scripture declared? Listen, God's, God's final word to the church. I don't, you, may not, you may not like it. Huh? A lot of people don't like it. But I think God's final word to the church is in his letter to the church of Laodicea. And in his final word to the church, he says, you think you're okay and you don't know you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And you need me. And you think your programs and all your stuff is going to do it, but it's not going to do it. But the Lord says this, I want you to know. I stand at the door and knock. Because the good shepherd always seeks those who are lost. He always mends those who are broken. He always heals those who are sick. He always gives that which is needed in our life. We may not agree with that which is needed in our life, but he knows. He always does those things. He always gives those things. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you'll answer the door and let me in, what happens? He comes into us and he sups with us. Communion. I sup with him, he with me. He becomes a part of who I am. That's always been God's heart. And that's always been the picture of what God is doing in the life of men and women after his own heart. Still what he wants to do today. And the call still goes out. And the knock still occurs. Amen?
Won't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time. We come before you and we study your word, Lord, and we thank you for the truth of who David is and what David's done. And God, I pray that we're challenged. I pray that we're challenged by what you're asking of us, and I pray we're challenged if we don't know you, if we have no relationship, or we've fallen away like David on so many occasions. The reason David's a man after God's own heart is he knew how to return. He knew how to repent, to lay his cares before the Lord and receive forgiveness. God, many of us are in many different places in many different ways, some tonight in need of salvation. All that is required is that I call upon the name of the Lord and I will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. The Bible tells in 1 John 1, 9, If I am faithful and just to, to confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Some tonight are in need of repentance. Some tonight are in need of salvation. Some tonight are in need of baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit working in their life. We all come in need to be fed by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our shepherd. And our shepherd's job is to feed us. He'll feed us salvation. He'll feed us forgiveness. He'll feed us energy. He'll feed us strength. He gives us what we need so that we can accomplish the task that lies before us. All that's required of us is to truly reach out and take a hold of all that God has for us. To allow him to rule and reign. To learn the lesson the children of Israel spent their life learning. I don't need a king. I need God to be my king. I don't need some man to show me the way. I need the Lord to show me the way. I need God to guide me. I need the Lord to lead me. God, I pray that you would do a perfect work in this place, God, even tonight. That that you would draw hearts unto yourself. Lord, that our eyes would be turned towards you. And God, that you would do a work, Father. That you do a work, life by life, moment by moment. And whatever we need, that we would understand that you are the ego I me, the I am. You are the becoming one because you become whatever we need. You are the deepest need of every man. And I pray, God, that you would fulfill that need in our lives tonight as we look towards you. We give you all the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.